This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us. As always, everyone, and also, as always, welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time. As we approach our anniversary again, uh, I, I decided to take a break from the Sinister series. I think there is so much that's being covered from the Sinister series or in the Sinister series that we just got to have breaks. It, it, there's too much stuff that some folks, uh, it, it's a lot to take in. And so we, we as we always tend to do, we have a segue. So we've got a segue for you today. And we're going back to that series, something we were doing during our anniversary last year. And we had to take a break. And I brought a group back. I'm very happy for the group that came back today, the mid-level UXers. I refer to these folks as. And when we tried to record this session before, there were some technical difficulties on my end. So, like, you know what? It's time. Uh, And what perfect timing so we can take a break from the Sinister series. Uh, We're, we're, again, we're doing this with the upcoming fourth anniversary uh, of the, of the, uh, World of UX podcast coming up here. I'm really excited. We are, wow, I mean, we're, we're coming up. We're approaching episode number 200. Uh, so I'm excited about that. But I'm very, very excited for these people taking time out of their schedule to be with us and to share their thoughts about the world of UX with the UX community at large. So today, uh, we've got Andy, we've got Kristana, we've got Prachi, we've got these folks with us. Uh, I don't have my sound effects where I would play something there to just have a little fun. <laughs> so, uh, But these are the three folks that are with us today. We're going to go, as we always do, in alphabetical order. Let everybody introduce themselves, and then we will be off to the races with our nice little energetic conversation here. Looking forward to it. So Andy, sir, go ahead, introduce yourself. Take it away, sir. All right. Thank you, Darren. Uh, my name is Andy Schaefer. I am a lead UX designer with Chai One. Is a, we're a, a small, mid-sized uh, boutique agency um, currently supporting and providing solutions to top-tier enterprise-level organizations. Um, we're a full-package agency that, uh, you know, from back-end, front-end, uh, but heavily uh, focused on user research. How did I get my start into UX? Well, I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, let's see. It, it, even when I was started in high school, um, wow, <laughs> at a tech class in 1999, and we learned HTML, and that's what drew me in. Mm-hmm. I took that on uh, through college, worked my way through college, uh, through various web designer jobs. You know, that was my title <laughs> for quite a long time. Um <clears throat> then uh, let's see in the you know two thousand teens ish time I took a took a side stint in uh, graphic design and was a lead graphic designer for a marketing team uh, in the startup scene mm-hmm. um, and that was a lot of fun learned a lot a lot of great experience there um, then I decided to kind of navigate back into UX uh, after the industry kind of matured a lot uh, built a lot of focus on user research and and kind of a user-centered design approach, which I thought was was wonderful. I mean, mm-hmm. graphic design and, and creative design is is wonderful uh, and a lot of fun, but it's very subjective. And that yes. was really <laughs> tough to sell your work um, 
in that arena. Um, so that's that's a great thing about uh, UX and having behavioral scientists uh, to work with to provide very extensive usability tests and analysis of how products perform and how they work for those folks. And so that's what that's what drew me back in. I've been doing this now for, oh gosh, um, 10, 10 years since that break. But um, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it, um, learning things new every day. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's about it. I, let's see, the, the company I work for is based out of Houston, and I work remotely out of Vermont, near Burlington, Vermont. Awesome, so, awesome. Pleasure to be here. I love that self-awareness moment uh, uh, that you had to recognize that. And we talk about it all the time that UX is a more of an objective discipline, but the more creative, the visual design, things of that nature, they're more subjective. And, and a lot of people don't understand that. And they try to come into UX without coming into knowledge of that. And that's going to make things difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it is definitely an objective discipline. So those of you who are thinking about getting into UX uh, and, and you are operating in the more creative arena, the visual design, things of that nature, we are we are objective over here. It's not about what you see. It's not about what you think. It's about what works. And and so, yep, yeah, I'm really, I, I rejoice hearing about that because a lot of people, they miss it. They miss it. Chris Donna, it is on you, ma'am. Take it away. Let the folks All know right. who you are. All right. Thanks so much, Darren. Um, so currently I am a user experience uh, researcher. Um, so I've been uh, in the UX research field for about a year, but um, in total, I've been in UX for, I believe this is year eight mm. for me. Hold on. Let me see. 2018. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes I got to count and remember, but this is year eight for me. So uh, I've worked uh, as a UX designer solely, so now I'm just um, in the UX research uh, space. Mm-hmm. So how I got into UX uh, unconventionally, uh, so for people who are trying to get into UX and like, what is it? So I had a little bit of a tease um, as far as uh, understanding uh, of kind of user experience in the sense that I was a teacher. And so when I was teaching I actually taught a design thinking course. And so I taught design mm-hmm. thinking to middle school students. Wow. But I was thinking to myself, I was like, it's, it seems like it's, it's more, it should be more after this design thinking. I'm like, I think it's something else. So then I started to search. <laughs> oh, what a novel I, I idea. About- <laughs> yeah, I was like design thinking because we would watch um, videos by IEO and I'm like, okay, it just seemed like it was supposed to be more. So then I, I researched, did my research, and then I found user experience and then I went to and got my master's degree. And so once I got into the discipline, I saw how much I didn't know, like once I actually mm-hmm. got into the discipline. So <laughs> this is because you go to school and I went to a reputable school. I went to the University of Michigan. So it's not nothing to anything to sneeze at. But um, I definitely once I got into the actual field, mm-hmm. I feel like I learned a lot more. So with user experience, uh, I learned 
like any field, like just because you have a certificate or degree, mm-hmm. you, it's a continuous learning process. Yes. You're always a learner. You're always a student of the discipline. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the field. And um, yeah, so like I said, this is year eight for me. And so, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. One of the things you just mentioned that stands out is, of course, I'm going to piggyback on everybody as we're doing these intros. I'm reminded because, of course, I teach at several universities. And one of the things that was reinforced to me was that when people go through a master's program, the the illusion is or the delusion is that when you go through an educational program that, you know, everything you need to know. That's not true. <laughs> Even when you when you're coming in, that's not it. We when you go when I teach at several master's programs and I teach at a UX certificate program for UCLA. For the master's programs in particular, what we're doing is putting a person on the road to mastery. It is the what a person does with what they learn after that that helps determine what's going to happen. That, that's that that's what's going to really determine the trajectory. You don't go through a master's program and then that's it. You're all set. Why did I say that? Because you have people that are, they don't want to go through a master's program. They're opting for certificate programs or they're opting for boot camps and things of that nature. And then the, the Kool-Aid that's being sold to those folks is that once you go through this, you have everything you need. Well, the folks in the master's programs, like what Christina just said, the folks in the master's programs don't have everything they need. You definitely don't. In six months, so, and and somebody recently, I don't know if you folks saw a post I put out there, a person said, you know what, you don't need all of that stuff, come to me, I've got a curriculum, you can learn everything you need to know about UX in two days. Did anybody see that post? Somebody, I, I put a screenshot of the post. <laughs> it's Two days? Are you kidding? No. When you come into UX, you are opting into lifelong learning. Period. You will always be learning. There will always be something new that you need to expose yourself to. And even the things that you feel that you have a solid handle on, there's always ways to get better at that. So know and understand, however you learn, it's a journey and you never arrive. So you just remind me of that. So I thought I'd chime in with that little tidbit. All right, thank you for that. Prachi, all right, tell the people who you are, ma'am. Thank you, Darren. So I also am a user experience researcher. I'm from India and I stumbled upon the field of UX because I was in IT and the kind of projects we were dealing with were mostly bug fixing and issues reported by the client teams that were based in US. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found myself that within six months, I was no longer coding anymore. And my team kind of relied on me to talk to the clients and the doctors and us. It was a diagnostic (laughs) app to figure out why these problems were happening in the first place. And then I realized that it has a name and it's called design. (laughs) 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 And then I went on to do my master's from the National Institute of Design in India. Mm -hmm. And I remember in the first year... uh, I was kind of naive and I remember asking a senior of mine to teach me UX design uh, because she was on campus for two weeks. And now looking back, I imagine how naive my request was. (laughs) (laughs) And that 
that's completely i completely agree i'm a lifelong learner also and uh, i've majorly worked in uh, b2c apps in mm-hmm. the domains of commute education and fashion and retail mm-hmm. yeah that's fantastic it, it, the thing that comes to mind with your intro is that something else that people need to be aware of is that you will think you know certain things but the truth is none of us didn't know what we didn't know. And and as you continue to advance in the discipline, you come into a higher level of self-awareness with regard to what you know and what you don't. That's when mm-hmm. you get control over your trajectory. That's when you truly get control over your journey. And a lot of people, okay, well, I've learned. I'm ready to do this now. <laughs> oh, really? Sit down and talk to somebody who's seasoned and watch and see how much you really know. And you'll find out, whoa. I thought I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they'll say, I thought I knew X, Y, and Z until <laughs> I sat down and talked to this person and this person, and this person, there's a lot to take in. And then the funny thing is when you look at a specific topic, everybody's not doing it the same way and you don't have to do everything the same way. So that means that there's a lot of different schools of thought. And so we spend a lot of time being exposed to different schools of thought. Mm. And, and it really helps us to be more diverse with our approaches. Um, and I hear people talking about, I, I talked to somebody today who said that they had a friend that was in academia, wanted to get into UX research. And when they cited what they knew already about UX research, they didn't realize that they didn't know. <laughs> they mm. didn't know what was going on. I, I do surveys after all my classes. They thought that was UX research. <laughs> because and really, and I work in academia. I don't do my survey. You you can survey your students, but the school is going to do it, and then mm. they 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 analyze and synthesize and provide you with the report. Mm. So we don't do any of that. So this person had not really done any of the work, but they thought that they did. And on top of that, I love the 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 universal design books there there's multiple books and one of them yeah. focuses solely on research and mm. there are 125 methods methodologies techniques yeah, yeah, and deliverables yeah. so you're talking about surveys well that's one of 125 mm. so there's a lot more to be learned right a lot more exactly. to yeah a lot more to consider we only use about 15 of them tops on a consistent basis mm. but even of the 15 what do you know so, so yeah, it's, we, we, we don't know what we don't know and we should be passionate about trying to discover what we don't know because that's when we discover great opportunities to grow. So that's what that reminds me of. Exactly. Right. Yes. And I just wanted to share a quote that I remembered. It's, uh, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice in practice. There is. So I, yep. I always remember this. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot of people, especially the people who go through the educational route, especially if it's uh, like formal at the university mm-hmm. level, you're going to hear more theory oriented things when you go through formal education. And and that's why I mean, we, I was always taught I, I'm very well versed in the science of education and mm-hmm. any learning experience revolves around presentation, application and feedback. So you're going to hear 
information. You're going to be presented with some content. You have to have opportunity to practice what you learn, and then you get feedback on how well you did, where you need to improve, things of that nature. And a lot of learning experiences, people are not getting that. Mm. They're not getting that. So you you get the theories and the presentation, but are you going to go and actually try to apply these things? Your your trial and error, your discovery. There's so much that happens at that applica- application stage, but a lot of people don't get to practice it. Or they'll do, I'll throw something in here about the Google program, which I'm sure you mm. folks have heard me rant, <laughs> rant about before. And in that program, there's presentation, there's application, and the feedback comes from peers. So basically that doesn't qualify as feedback. So that's not a legitimate uh, learning experience because yeah, there, yeah. there really is no feedback. It's coming, and people are cheating. They'll turn in blank assignments and say, "Will you please pass me? I just want to complete the course." And people sign off. This is actually happening at epidemic levels. So, four hundred thousand graduates, but how many of them fake their way through it, just to say that they went? And then the the joke that's on some of those people is, if you go through the program, Google won't hire you. Yeah. And people don't talk about. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> So, yeah, that that comes in real handy there. (laughs) Let's get into some of our topics for today. Thank you for those intros. And just let me know. Chime in. Uh, We don't have to go in any particular order, but I'll throw the topic out there, and then we'll just run with it from that perspective. The first topic that we were going to talk about, and I'm going to flip the order on these just a tad differently from what we talked about before we began recording. Tell me about one of your most inspiring moments that you have experienced as a UX professional who wants to start us off with expiring moments. I see the wheels turning. Everybody's looking up at the ceiling. Isn't it funny how we do that? We start thinking we look like there's an answer up there. That's right. It's up there somewhere. <laughs> it's funny how that works. The only thing I see is the the, the previous owners of the house put stars on the ceiling for their kids that glow in the dark. So <laughs> I can't look up there because all I think about is the fact that, man, I still want to get those stars now. But <laughs> who wants to start us off the on this topic? Who has a, a story about a uh, an inspiring moment, so a, a light bulb moment, something that just wowed you that happened, something that shocked you, surprised you in UX? I still see Kristana looking up at the ceiling there. So <laughs> I could go first. I mean, I have... I just remembered something. Go. So I remember it was one of uh, the first research projects that I had done. It was a usability study for an education platform. And they had uh, developed this feature in which the teacher could actually see the notebooks, the digital notebooks of six of her students. Okay. And uh, their idea was to figure out that by looking at the notebook, the teacher will figure out which, which child is stuck and where. And when I was doing this test, I remember one of the teachers was like, I asked her, can you figure out which child is stuck and where? And she was like, but I don't see their faces. How will I know which child is stuck? (laughs) And that was really an enlightening thing for me that for the teacher, the face of the child is the interface, Mm. not the notebook. Of the child, and I, and I still think about it sometimes, and I think it's a something I often remember. 
Oh, goodness, man. Those are some ideas come to mind. I'm not going to dive in on your project, but if I have a few <laughs> ideas that come up because I wonder. I, I did. I worked on something like that once before, too, because I helped mm-hmm. redesign the National Geographic Learnings English as a Second Language platform. And in that program, because you, you, you mentioned children, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a little bit different. The initiative is going to be different, but these were adult learners, and so mm-hmm. it was feedback that served as that that trigger. So they would know to engage, reach out and engage with the learner if they would express concerns, submit a request, uh, things of that nature. So they were they were able to to uh, optimize that that dynamic, that interpersonal mm-hmm. dynamic in a digital learning interface. That's wow. the challenge, because when you when you see people and you know what's going on, you either I mean, I, I think about a classroom, you're walking around mm-hmm. in a, in a classroom with kids you're walking around watching them work. You can see facial expressions. People are raising hands. You yep. can see if somebody is struggling because you can see what they're doing. With mm-hmm. adult learners, the dynamics are different. Yeah. It's different. And, and a lot of adults don't like. It's funny. When we were kids, we weren't afraid to look stupid. Mm. <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when there's adults. Adults learn how to play all kinds of little weird little little games, and one of them is that they don't want to ask certain questions because they don't want to questions. look a certain way. Yeah, <laughs> so that just comes to mind. You make me think about that. Uh, anybody else? Inspiring moments. Looks like everybody else is settled. Yeah, I've the, got one. The facial um, expressions say you have arrived. <laughs> I think uh, for for me uh, was the moment when I realized that my work wasn't about me. And my performance. Oh, yes. Uh, I was working with um, uh, the Salt Lake City School District. I was the the communications designer there. So the title is a bit misleading. I was the web designer, but also the creative director <laughs> for the whole <laughs> district. You know, so yep. we had uh, several schools, um, like 40 schools and maybe 15 different departments that were independent of each other and had their own communication efforts. Um, but what I, I, I held, I began to hold monthly content management trainings because they were mostly set up of like, mm. how do you update your school website? Cause I'm one, one person. I can't do all of that. I don't, first of all, I don't know what the heck's going on at every <laughs> single school at all the time. And, and so I, I wanted to empower teams, uh, or sometimes one person at each school to help uh, contribute to their messaging to their families. And as I, you know, picked up some steam with those training courses, I I was getting a lot of feedback that, you know, it was very uh, appreciative. You know, folks appreciated that I would put this on on a consistent basis, have open office hours, and no matter their skill level, cause sometimes I was getting parents with almost hardly no computer experience at all, but they were willing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of took the, made me realize it took the ego out of my, my work. And, you know, we, I, I think most of us who get into some sort of creative field um, is because we have good taste. And how do we build that taste? Well, we like seeing pretty things. And we like it so much, we start noticing it everywhere we look, from <laughs> restaurant menus to interior design mm-hmm. to uh, vehicles. I mean, you name it. Um, and since technology and the digital age has put a screen in front of us all, 
all the damn time, uh, we, we see that and we are constantly teaching ourselves what good design is because we are interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we naturally are leading, you know, or I guess a little bit more advanced than, you know, our, our other counterparts in other industries doing other jobs. And when they come to us to hire us for work, we sometimes, especially uh, when we're new, we, we know that we know more than them. And sometimes that comes off poorly. Um, sometimes it doesn't. But even if, if that comes off in a good way, um, it, it still can confuse the folks that we want to work with and help. Yep. yep. So I kind of realized from hearing that, and then I, I, I kept growing on that, like, oh, this isn't about me. The I need to listen. Like, what what is it? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Not that I know this button looks better here because I've seen it around or or whatever the reason is. Does it accomplish the pain point? Does it accomplish the goal? And so that that was huge for me. And, and especially diving just from the old Wild West web design days. Uh, Darren, you remember those? Um <laughs> To a more systematic approach to digital interfaces and and using research to inform those decisions, you know that that was huge. And and I think for a lot of folks getting into it, um, you know they, I don't know if they hear that at, in in higher ed or not. Uh, I'm mostly self taught, although I'm I'm furthering my education every day. But that you you see that a lot with youngsters or just new designers in general is that they. They walk around with their head high and they they feel that they know all the answers and they're not really <laughs> willing to budge. Even, even when what is needed is not the best looking thing, that's okay. Yeah. We'll accomplish the goal within the boundaries that were set, whether it's financial boundaries, time boundaries, mm-hmm. other resource boundaries, tech boundaries. Um, the goal is to to satisfy the need within those boundaries, and there's really no room for ego in that. So that that was my my uh, huge, I guess, aha moment. I guess you could say that's fantastic. And you remind me of uh, a recent social media post where I just reminded people: UX, real UX, is not quote unquote sexy. Uh, <laughs> it's about accomplishing goals. It's about meeting needs. It's about delighting users. It's about matching their mental models. And the prettiest thing out there doesn't necessarily do that. Or if it fails to do it, now you're going to have an issue where you can really ruffle the feathers of of that of that customer. And, and that's not a good thing. That's not good for the business. Uh, it's not good for your UX department's reputation. A lot of issues there. So yeah, real UX is not sexy. And it takes a while for some people to get that. I mean, years for some yeah. people to get it. So Yep, Christana. So, um, thinking about um, inspiring moments, I guess it came very early in my career um, before I um, actually graduated. So, a part of my uh, master's program, I had to do an internship um, over the summer. So, this happened in like 2015. And so, I was doing a user experience uh, research uh, internship down in Atlanta. And so it was my first like, okay, uh, 
professional job um, in the sense that I was an intern. So I had did some research and I had given some feedback about this particular design and I, I gave out the uh, analysis and I read my report and that was the first time I was in a meeting and the designer who had worked on it, I mean, they just railed on me in this, in this meeting. <laughs> and so... I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, but this is what the the uh, participants said, the users of this particular uh, product. And so my manager at the time, and this is where it comes in inspiring, she was just really supportive. And so even this uh, particular setting that we're in as far as a podcast and the support network that's um, necessary within the UX field, mm-hmm. She provided that. And so she just gave me a lot of support in that role as far as what our responsibilities were as the professional to say, um, this is, we report out what the uh, users say, you know, people may not like it, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't try to hold hands, we don't try to sugarcoat things. Mm -hmm. And she told me I did the right thing. And so... For me, that was like the aha, like I, I felt good. And I was like, okay, I was like, I, I, I'm doing the right thing. Like why I got into this, I'm getting the support needed from uh, from management level at yep. that time. And shout out to Sherry Sipsis. I'm still in contact <laughs> with her. And, and it came full circle for me once I decided to um, go into a UX research specific role um, as far as just that experience and being supported uh, there. And so uh, I appreciate community um, for the UX field because uh, like we were talking about before kind of the podcast started, sometimes that does not always happen in this <laughs> right. field. And so when you find people that d- are supportive and are there and um lift you up mm-hmm. you remember those things and so that was 2015 and it's many years later and i remember that mm-hmm. because i definitely needed that at the time but i still remember that and so yeah that that's such a fantastic point and it's something we don't hear people talk about enough that we're all we have a lot mm-hmm. of times <laughs> you can you can be exposed to stakeholders and clients so much, and those interactions are usually they're more volatile than not. Uh, and and it's not until you can get together with the UX team and sharpen iron and bounce thoughts off each other or have a critique session, and that, that's another story. I'll, I'll try not to get on the soapbox about that. But it's that time that we spend with UXers that helps ground us. Because we get to sit and talk to people who understand who we are, who understand how we think. The value systems are usually the same if you're in a good environment. And so that support comes forth. And now you're ready to go and take on the world. You feel like that. When you when you, when you you sit and talk to UXers and you go away, you're ready to take on the world. And then you get out there and they're shooting down your wireframes and they're doing all other kind of stuff. And you're sitting there listening to them talk and they're trying to do your job and they don't realize it. And you got to sit there and take that in because they're getting all in. What if we do this? What if we do that? I like this. I like that. Oh, how about you folks just talk about the requirements? Cause you just, we just spent 40 minutes of you trying to do my job and you have no idea. (laughs) And that's painful 
to listen to that stuff. And then we come back and talk to the UXers, and then everybody's talking about the challenges. Everybody's talking about the work they did. Everybody's trying to get together, band together, and talk about solving problems. And when we come out, we feel like, I don't know if anybody ever saw the old cartoon Underdog. And when he wanted to do something, he take his little super underdog, super energy pill. That's that's sort of like what it feel like. It's like you took a vitamin or something. You, you're ready to go after that. So that support is huge. And uh, like I'm talking about in, in some the series that we're preempting right now, that we're taking a segue from, about the sinister nature. And, and so we'll throw a little sinister trait in here because I don't think I talked about this. We don't support each other enough. Whether it's on LinkedIn, you don't have to just support people that work with you, support people that don't work with you. We need to support one another because our relationship is still misunderstood grossly. When you go to a meeting, we are the babies in the room from a discipline standpoint. Everybody understands the product managers. Everybody understands the product owners. Everybody understands the developers. Everybody understands the QA people. Everybody understands the account manager. And then UX comes in. We're the only people that folks try to do our work. We're the only people that people want to democratize, and it drives us crazy when it happens. So we're trying to accomplish something while trying to maintain our sanity because of all the dysfunction that we're commonly or constantly being subjected to. So we need to support each other more. And instead, folks are out there trying to make a name for themselves. I, I saw a post today where somebody was they, there was a post, somebody, somebody wrote me on LinkedIn and they, hey, Darren, you got to see this post on Medium. And it was about, the, what's the difference between a UX designer and a UI designer? And I went, wow, this is 2024. So many people have written about that. And I looked at this article and all that person did was regurgitate what other people had already said. So mm-hmm. here's where you have the people who are trying to make a name for themselves or somebody said you need to put yourselves out there. So they'll do it by any means necessary. So they'll go and get other people's content, plagiarize it, act like they did something. And if you think that's bad, guess what the end of the post talked about? Oh, and if you want to get more understanding, you should take our UX UI course. So when the whole thing was said and done, <laughs> when the whole thing was said and done, they were trying to sell a course. And it was said, a UX slash UI course. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So you said all that to let us know that you're still infected. You tried to to clarify the difference between UX and UI, and all you did was muddy the waters again. So we, we, we know all of these types of things are going on, and the war against seniors and all these different types of things. And so we lack support. We don't get support. I'm, I'm somebody will get upset with me about this. We lack support from our associations. Our associations are not supporting us the way that they should. From a UX perspective, you can't go there and hear a voice of reason, which ironically is what UXers are. Anybody in the UX field is a voice of reason. Wherever you work, whatever you do, everybody's talking crazy. We're the ones that come in and settle everything down. That's what we do. But if we're crazy, you can't settle sell everybody down <laughs> if you're nuts. <laughs> so that's just not going to work. So we need to support each other, and, and we lack it. We lack it. I, I wish we could do more of that, but it's it's something else. So there's a little sinister trait, even in the segue. 
I got to throw one in there. So, but cool stuff. So good, inspiring moments. I'm sure that folks could think of other ones. We're going to move on to another, to another one of the topics though. Um, what have you, or how did you, as you transition from your, what you consider to be that entry level stage, however long that of an incubation period you felt that was when you started getting into more of a mid-level, when you were confident that you were a mid-level UXer, what was that transition like for you? And what type of things come to mind that you might say to other people who are trying to manage their their maturity and their growth in the discipline? I know that, I, and I will throw this in for me, I sort of, as you folks are giving that some thought, I I, I love, it. We, we've been talking about this with other people recently, how that the 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 main part of emotional intelligence and that every emotional intelligence expert talks about is self-awareness. And and I know for me it was about consciously being aware of how well you're doing and not being afraid to say that there's something you don't know and then deliberately trying to advance your skill in a certain area and then just constantly going through that cycle and just doing it all the time. That, that, that over the years was just big. I hunt still to this day. If a topic comes up, I'm going to hunt. Even if it's something I already know that I know I'm going to hunt and try to find where can I grow concerning that topic? I feel I'm sound concerning that topic, but what if I find out there's something I don't know? Cause you don't, we don't know what we don't know again. So, how about I hunt for it? How about I look for it? How about I expose myself to people talking about this topic, waiting for them to drop some nugget that I'm not aware of? And now growth opportunity. So that's that's the big thing for me. And, and even at my 28 years, I still do it to this day. I will listen to a lecture, a talk about something that I feel I'm well versed in, hoping to hear something I do not know. It's like watching that movie and you catch and you catch that line that you you've seen that movie a thousand times and yeah. then you catch that line and you're like, ha, oh, I never knew. I never man, that was good. I never noticed that before. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So what 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 thoughts do you folks have about that maturity track? For me, you know, that's that's a really good question because it's it's tough. You, we make various strides and hit milestones through our career. Um, I think for me, you know, when you're starting out, you're, you're working either in teams or solo and you're, you're being guided, right? You're being guided with the work and you're more or less a graphic designer for a screen. And that's great. It's fantastic. You're learning the software, you're learning file management skills, you're learning how to take instruction. But when you're, as we graduate into those maturity levels, into mid and, and, and even senior, I think you, you slowly start to build the ability to explain and convey the yes. why. Yes, yes. You're, you, you, you build up all that experience and you can do Figma, you can do XD. You, back then, you, you can do Dreamweaver, you can write the code. <laughs> and then it becomes second nature and then you don't have to think about it anymore. And then it's like, well, now what? I'm bored. 
I'm bored <laughs> and I want to I want to try to do uh, the next level. I want to try to go for mid or junior or lead. Um, and <clears throat> that level is is more about the communication. I feel communicating the the why the reasoning of, of your decision making skills to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have all kinds of different voices and personalities in the room that that need to be convinced because in creative industry, everyone feels like they can do it at home or their, their high school kid can do it. <laughs> and that's the battle. We got to battle sometimes. And I feel like if we can articulate why we make decisions and have evidence scientific yes. evidence to yes. back it up mm-hmm. and articulate that scientific evidence, um, testing results, whatever it is, it, that that for me is that, that kind of line is when we can articulate the why, then we can start moving forward and progressing. You know, and then we we start farming out the pixel pushing to juniors because they need to come through the same way. Yes. So that that's that would be my my advice. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, I have that in my. Uh, I've been speaking about personal UX maturity, which is something we never hear people talk about, and that's part of my model. How well mm-hmm. can you communicate on this topic on a scale of zero to two point five? How well can you communicate? Because if you if you have the confidence and you know you've done it, okay, good. Give yourself a higher score. If you know that you struggle at it. Don't be afraid. It doesn't mean you don't have to go give all your paychecks back. It doesn't mean it just means that this is an area where you can grow. But yeah, and humble about it too, right? Like even the yes. other day, and, and you know my you know my boss Michelle, right? Yep. The other day I asked her about a a checkbox state. You know, like there's still some simple things that either just elude my mind at the time, yep. or yep. you got to not be afraid to say I don't know, I yep. don't know, I need help. And no matter if it seems like a, a seemingly entry level question, that's all right. Uh, we're we're all trying to move forward, and and we all have the same goal of success. Yep. And then going back to what we were just talking about, you know, support. And and we're lucky to find, a, a, especially in a co working environment, to have that internal support on the team, even even uh, cross team uh, relationships. Uh, and if you find that, hold on to it. Yeah, don't lose the money. Yeah, because you lose your you lose your mind Ooh. out there. Wow, that that's huge too. Because a lot of people will jump from job to job chasing money. If you have a good boss, um, that's worth its weight in gold times ten. <laughs> because most UX bosses today don't know anything about UX, and if they don't know anything about UX, and you do they're not going to be able to value you. I talk about this all the time. They're not going to be able to value you and you are going to have some sleepless nights. Then <laughs> you you do not want to you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Uh, who else has a thought on on this one? So I was thinking about um that transition from junior to uh, mid and uh for me it was learning the power of no. Mm. And so that's kind of piggybacking on Anthony (laughs) there once you're able to explain um, your um, reports or, you know, explain your process, you have the ability to be able to say no and back it up. That's really important because when you're a junior, 
you're just learning and you're almost like a, a order taker where it's just like, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But then you start to get to the point where you start to question, okay, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, where did this request come from? Yes. Was this just somebody who was a CEO and then they saw it was a problem? Or is this actually something that we can look at some data and say, this is a problem. So you get start getting projects and you're able to start saying, no, this is not really a problem, but this may be a problem. So for me, that learning to say no to certain things, mm -hmm. be able to back it up and have the data to support my no, that empowered me um, to be able to feel like, okay, I'm not just an order taker anymore. I'm not just doing hurrying up, doing wireframes at the time. Um, <laughs> and going through that process, I, I matured in the sense that looking at problems more holistically. Mm -hmm. So I think that was my transition from junior to mid. Once I was able to say no confidently, Mm -hmm. Back it up to people respected it. So that respect um, factor is key as well because yes. stakeholders, you know, if they don't trust your results, they don't trust your designs, not only are you not going to be out of there, but they're not going to respect you either. So it's really important yep. from when you're a junior to build your um, your personal brand. Um, kind of as far as just being able to support what you're doing, have the evidence and do true UX and not just pull opinions because people are going to call you on it. Mm -hmm. They're going to figure it, you out. <laughs> so <laughs> once you learn to do uh, true UX and having data to support it, you know, you get that respect and you then you can say no. So you can't yeah. just start off. People that are new to the field, you just can't start off saying no. You got to kind of build yourself up yeah. to be able to push back a little bit on your stakeholders when they're just throwing stuff at you to be able to say why, you know, and then explain the why. So, yeah. Yeah. You remind me of uh, earlier in my career, I've worked at a design agency where we were responsible for doing the work for Ford Motor Company. And um, I had the nickname amongst some of the stakeholders on our side that were doing the work. Uh, my nickname was Dr. No, <laughs> because <laughs> they would constantly try to get us to do something. We can't do that. And immediately I would explain why. And I would explain both sides of it. So they didn't take it personally. They just it just got funny after a while. But they didn't take it personally because not only do we have to learn how to tell people no, but we have to learn how to be diplomatic when we do it so that people don't take it personally. And you can't be all hotsy totsy about it and you have to an unprofessional in the presentation. I'm also reminded about the fact that how important it is to learn how to say no, because I've, I've been in a situation before where people know that the client is about to head in a destructive direction. And they will respect you. They may not like it when they hear you say no, but they will eventually respect you for having said no, especially when you bring the data that proves it as opposed to saying nothing. And then they find out that you knew 
and said nothing, and then they lose $100,000, and then they find out that they lost $100,000 because you decided to spare their feelings, you're, 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 you're toast after that. And I see that a lot. And that's why I talk about UX being under siege because a lot of today's product designers, that's exactly what they do. That's all that they do. A lot of the cult of UX, that's what they do. When, when marketing rules UX, that's what happens. But when real UX gets done, we shouldn't do this. This is why. This is the risk. And I always document it. And if they say, okay, Darren, we understand where you're coming from, but we're going to do this. Like, okay, I did my job. We don't own our designs. And a lot of people, up and comers, don't know that. We don't own it. So we own the user experience, but we don't have the clout to force them to accept our recommendation. So uh, if they fall, I love how they always come back. Mm-hmm. Just be sitting there waiting with your documentation. Don't say I told you so. Be professional. Yep. Be nice about it. And and okay, we're, I remember we did the, uh, we'll let Prachi get to her, her point. Uh, we were working on something for Ford Motor Company back in the day. Whenever a new vehicle comes out, there's a reveal where they're telling people this car is coming. And then there's a launch when the car is available. And so we did the reveal for this one particular vehicle that was being reintroduced to the market after being gone for years. And they got, we did all of our groundwork. I presented the wireframes and as usually is the case, the creative people wanted to do their own thing. So they wanted to ignore what I did. And back in that day, they were trying to win the flash site of the week award. And some people probably remember that crazy stuff. And so they went ahead and they ignored what I did, modified things, rolled it out and it failed. And when we got ready to do the launch, we went through the same, same process. I did my wireframes. I report, I I presented them to the group and, but before the creative people who were going to ignore me and do their own thing again, they were going to ignore the fact that the, that the law, that the, or we were doing the launch. They were going to ignore the fact that the reveal site failed. And so uh, they're just going to do what they wanted to do. And the product owner said, you know what? I appreciate what everybody is doing here. I appreciate what you folks did last time, but it did fail. This time we're going to do what Darren recommended. And when he, when he had my back and he stood up and did that, they executed exactly what my recommendations were. And it turned out to be the best launch site in the history of Ford Motor Company at the time. Because, but... I had all the documentation. I wasn't raising a fuss about it. I did my job and they respected me for that. And so by me being more peaceable and diplomatic, it actually set the stage for them to accept the recommendations next time around. And we all succeeded and everybody benefited from that. So pretty cool stuff. So yeah, we got to be willing to say no, be willing to say no. I, I saw a situation once where they, the company was misspelling words but they were misspelling words knowingly because they said it registered. It, they got more SEO out of it. That doesn't make any. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll we'll step on. Prachi. Yeah, really, some quite some interesting points hearing all three of you, and I think I I had a lot of similar experiences as well. 
but for me i think uh, three things were crucial when i first joined being in ux research to when i transitioned to having my own team of researchers i fortunately had the luck to work with a lot of great designers and design managers so and i also established the ux research teams there being a newbie myself so i had i didn't really have somebody to give me orders you know <laughs> at least in my department yeah so i kind of did things and i made a few mistakes but over time i realized and i kept on iterating on how to do recruitment of talent or how to set up research repositories or processes mm-hmm. and um, what i had in that time those times and which was required was the bias for action but transitioning into a more senior pos- position or a mid level position instead of bias for action it became purposeful action mhm so not just action that looks like activity is going on <laughs> busy work ux hamster exactly. work exactly <laughs> exactly like for instance i never even needed ever to create a empathy map in my whole life mm-hmm. and i dedicated so much time to learning that and no product manager or business person has ever told me oh where's the empathy map for this project and i realized that videos were actually much more useful so we focused on the art of crafting those videos very simple things but mm. bringing the there's no substitute for voice of the user if you actually hear and see them so yeah yeah that's good that sounds good yes it's funny how people think sometimes that they have to always do certain things and they get to that checkbox mentality uh but it's better to pivot and say what's going to benefit us the most here let's do that and and not be forced okay well no we got to do the next thing on the checklist not necessarily the case i i know a lot of people today they're being taught to follow this 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 strict rigid same set of steps but if you're working on something different and you're dealing with different personas different needs different pain points you may not have to do things the same way all the time. So I yeah, more people need to know and understand that. We're going to move to our last question. I remove one question from the list. The last question, this one is probably relatively simple, but what are your thoughts on UXR versus UX design as opposed to and it could be anything. Passion points, uh, where do you feel the importance is with regard to the two of them. I mean, when I was coming up and and Andy, I'm sure you saw this as well because of how long you've been doing this. When we were doing the UX work back in 2002, 2005, 2010, there were no specializations or they were very 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 rare. It, we were all generalists, so we did design and research. Where then in 2012, it split If this was 2007, you wouldn't be able to get a UX researcher job for the most part. You didn't they weren't being advertised anywhere. You were getting a it was always called UX design, UX architect, interaction designer, or information architect. But no matter what your title was, you always did design and research and strategy. That's the way that that's the way I came up. So, what are your thoughts on the anything with regard to how we're today people say there's the designers some people have actually tried to separate 
the UX guards. Like it's a completely different discipline. No, we're all, all under the same umbrella. And, and actually splitting us makes us weaker. And people don't realize that. So, but what are your thoughts on the topic? And it's it's a, a free-for-all. Anything that you that that comes to mind with regard to UXR and UX design is good here. Go ahead, uh Christine. I see you loaded up. <laughs> yeah. I guess I um because I've been thinking about this recently. So um when I was a UX designer for six years, I was essentially a UX generalist because I did both design and research. <laughs> and I really like that. And so I came over to the UX research side of things. And so I've been doing it for about a year. And I've been evaluating after this year. I had my um, like year anniversary last week. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of did like an evaluation of how am I feeling about this role? And so for me, now that I'm doing UX research uh, specialty, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a disconnect um, for me. And I'm... I've, I'm just being candid. I've, I guess I've I've started to struggle a little bit because I'm used to being in a project and knowing the full that full design cycle of um, being able to know the requirements mm-hmm. uh, and talk to the stakeholders at the beginning. And so now in a UX research role, it's like I'm getting everything on the back end of it, and so I have so many questions, and so. Once the project finally gets to me and I'm still asking, I guess, design questions because I I start off like, okay, where did this uh, uh, problem or question come from? You know, do we have voice of the customer data? Did this come from a stakeholder they saw was a problem? Where is this coming from? And what's essentially happening is they're like, you don't have to worry about that. Now you're just... Just do this qualitative <laughs> research for us. We vetted it. This this is a legit project, and so for me, I've I'm 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 having a lot of thoughts there right now. So it's interesting you ask that question because mm-hmm. when I was in a generalist role, I felt more con- connected to the product. Yep. Um, that I was designing because I'm like I'm doing the design. I know which research I need. And even now, I'm. It's like I'm, I'm a UX researcher, but I'm being only pushed like one way. Either I'm doing unmoderated interview for something or moderated. I'm like, well, I want to do other methodologies, but you know where I'm at is always. Well, we need moderated interview. I'm like, that's not the only thing that I know how to do. So it's a bit, become a little bit frustrating <laughs> because the designers where I'm at, they do the competitive analysis. They do the heuristic evaluations. They do all the other methodologies that I'm interested in doing and know how to do and was used to doing. And now I'm just pitted to, well, you're a moderator. So now I'm just feeling like, am I really a UX Ooh. researcher or am I just a moderator? <laughs> so um, Would it be safe to say that when you were doing both, that you felt like you were more empowered? Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So, I, like I said, just a week ago, I, I started just evaluating. Like, I, I feel very disconnected from a lot of the products that I'm doing research for because it's like I'm getting it at the 
not necessarily at the end of the product cycle, but where I'm getting it, I, I still have so many questions and I'm not there to understand like those requirements, where those requirements came from. So yeah, so it's it's been an interesting year for me. <laughs> and re- researchers need to have the autonomy to do it. Because the name of the game with any research is to obtain actionable, trustworthy data that will help inform the work. Uh, what, what does it take to get there? Well, it depends on what we're trying to do. So there has to be a certain degree of autonomy so, okay, I mean, we mentioned the universal design earlier, all these methods, I've got them all laid out here, which one will best serve what I'm doing right now? And you need to be able to go, you know what? I need to do a contextual analysis. I need to do a cognitive walkthrough. You know, right here, why don't we just do some first click testing? Maybe we need to do some, maybe we need to load up Crazy Egg and do some heat mapping and pull that data out and find out what people you know, and, and so a lot of times people, they research can be detrimentally impacted if the work is presented from a pigeonhole perspective. So that's all I'll say about that. Oh, uh, who's going to, who's going to go next? I am, I am, I am suppressing myself just in case you hadn't guessed. <laughs> Who has another thought on UXR and UX design? Uh, Prachi, you, you look loaded up. Well, uh, in my experience, I've always noticed that uh, good designers, great designers, almost certainly have a great, solid understanding of research. Mm-hmm. And uh, designers who will find their designs frequently going into iterations, and uh, it's just, it doesn't, the results show that it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. But usually, we were teamed up with designers. And we worked on projects together. So we were able to course correct very fast, like within a, you know, a couple of days timeline. So in, in a way, I appreciate working closely with designers where you can communicate what both of you specialize in, but also have an understanding of each other's um, process and where your authority kind of stops. And where you actually have to pass the baton, as you as you could say. Yeah. There, there is one thing, however, that I feel that researchers kind of have taken a backseat on is not because of a fault of us, but product managers or anybody who feels that they can talk, feels that they can do research. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> many of them can't do Figma yet. So they still kind of prize the designer's opinion more over the researcher's opinion. And that's something I would like to see change. Yeah, it's it's funny. You remind me of how when people talked about the democratization of research, they talk about it because they use the term democratization literally, and they don't understand the history of democratization. The Mm -hmm. initial goal of democratization was not everybody do the work. It was everybody participate in the synthesis, in the analysis and the synthesis. Mm. That's really what was initially meant. <laughs> and so everybody jumped. Now everybody wants to do it. And they feel like, oh, I can put together a test in, in user testing. Oh, I can do this and that. No, you actually can't. Uh, this is a science. We are scientists. 
There are a lot of people who work in UX that do not know that we are scientists. And it is a an infinite science, meaning that everything is always shaking and moving. And, and there's there's a lot of things that we do on the research side that's or in the UX side that's not rigid. So hence it's a it's an infinite science. When the when your developers are trying to build what you design. They're dealing with a finite science because they've got to deal with their JavaScript or whatever code they're working with, and they're bound by the the, the constraints of that language. Yeah. They can't come up with an idea on the spot. Either that language will do that or it won't. And so, but with us, it shifts and it moves. And mm. and and that's why a lot of times people struggle with what we talk about as UXers, because we present something that's associated with an infinite science. And they can't, a lot of times can't relate to what we're talking about until we translate our infinite work into finite work in the form Mm -hmm. of, in the form of data. So to speak, once that data is there, now it's finite. It has limits. It has boundaries. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying now. But when you first said it, they're like, what do you, why do you say, why do you think we should do that? I don't think that's not you. I, I once made 70 changes to a page. And my and my boss didn't think I had done anything because they don't understand. <laughs> they don't understand. I'm looking at things from a from a micro experience perspective. On top of the fact that we're paid to be anal. Any mm-hmm. any UXers that aren't anal, they're not doing their job. We're we're paid to be anal. And when you a lot of people hear that term, they get, oh, what do you mean? It's the root word of analysis. You know, calm down. Mm-hmm. The we're we're very, very analytical. We're extremely analytical. Not to be anal retentive or being a jerk about what we observe, but trying to understand the weeds because that's really where the where the experience is made or or it breaks. When people complain about something, it's usually something that's happened at the micro level. Mm. And so if you don't examine at the micro level and that problem comes through and it happens at the micro level, you have lost because you didn't pay attention to micro experiences. So it, it, it it's really critical, but these people, they can't, they're not supposed to do our work. They don't know how to, I mean, have you ever had a stakeholder attend a research effort and they can't be quiet to save their life? I, I couldn't <laughs> agree more. I had a senior, I, I wouldn't name him, but I had a VP of a product for, of a huge multinational company. That interview was the longest pitch ever. He was pitching to the user in the interview. No. Zip it. <laughs> Zip it, dude. Zip it. I mean, I, I've seen people, you're trying to have them perform a task, and the and the person that's sitting in there, they're not able to perform the task. If you can't perform the task, we want to know that. Mm. They can't take it. Oh, why are you doing it? All you have to do is, I'm like, no. <laughs> So now the data is is uh, the data integrity is shot now, yep. or you go you have one test and then they want to change it, and then when you get ready to go with the third participant, then they want to change it. You go to the fourth participant, they want to change it. Well, now the garbage in, garbage out. We can't. We have to test it the same way. People don't know that. In other words, people don't know that research has to be designed, mm-hmm. and so that Thank eliminates. You the amateur from being a part of this process. Let me know what you need. I'll let you know when the data is ready and I have analyzed and synthesized it. We'll get together and we'll walk through the whole thing 
and we'll handle this together. But I don't need you with me, just like you don't need me with you while you're doing this stuff over here. I don't need you over here with me. And and so because we've got this order taker mindset now, and it and it has infected the entire like every every level of what's happening with UX. And so now we're being impacted because people are being involved where they shouldn't. And you know what what actually started that to a great extent? What mm-hmm. what sort of legitimized it in a in a sense, air quotes, um design thinking. Mm. Because it ushered I people much, yeah. it ushered people to a position that they didn't normally have access to. Everything that design thinking said it offered us, we were already doing that. So now you want to take away the users and you want to replace the users with subject matter experts and stakeholders, people Mm. who are just just completely intoxicated by bias. Mm. So now you've got these bias, intoxicated, bias driven people in places that normally they wouldn't be in. And we're trying to roll out solutions that are coming from tainted sources. And that's why you see a lot of the things that you see today. And why, again, UX has been under siege since 2011, 2012 for these very same reasons. Not good. Not good at all. See, and I got my soapbox out. Come <laughs> back down. Come back down. And we're, we'll let, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and, and we're going to let uh, uh, Andy close off the, the this topic today. Well, I might have a slightly differencing in opinion, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of feel like uh, a good analogy here might, might help um, to explain my position. Um, I'd, I'd like to compare it to the medical field, let's say, right? So long time ago, it, it, it was just one person, a shaman maybe, or a healer or a medicine person. They were doing everything and they were learning as they went. Fast forward a little ways, um, I don't know, and, and this is kind of like in between, you know, that was, I don't know, Stone Age, not Stone Age time, but, you know, hunter-gatherer, <laughs> tribal systems, you know, yeah. get in between there, right? Let's go to the Dark Ages. I kind of feel like we're in the Dark Ages right now, where we're really awkward, We, we, um, and, and we're experimenting with what practices work so like we're in that stage where we're drilling holes in people's heads or or um you know (laughs) (laughs) draining blood or doing absolutely (laughs) dangerous things that hurt people that's what i I kind of feel like we're in that weird awkward stage because you know look at the medical field now you have specialists that are very 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 minutely specialized in very specific functions Mm -hmm. and they are educated as such um i so i I, that's kind of my my take on Mm -hmm. on that the entire ux umbrella really and i feel like that's going to split even more and it also also kind of depends on the set and setting we have uh you know are you with a are are you in an environment where there is a lot of resource you know take for example you again medical field you have small towns in the rural areas you have one person or one office that does the yeah. generalized work for for everyone in the community you move to a more urban uh, uh setting 
and you have large hospitals with very specialized mm -hmm. uh, personnel who can attack specific problems. So it kind of depends on where your setting is, right? So if, if you are in a, a, a work environment where there's a lot of resource, there's a lot of money, right? We can afford specialists. Um, I, then I think it, it, it would only benefit the, the overall goal to bring in folks who are specially trained in, okay, we're talking about UXR here. So specially trained in statistics, analysis, um, mm -hmm. data, uh, uh, collection. Uh, they under they're they're trained in in psychology, they're trained in you know human ergonomics, and they bring that to the table. They've spent a hundred percent of their time focusing on the human condition to mm -hmm. be able to derive meaningful uh, data to support um, design, you know, specific design. So UI, UI design, the same thing. Maybe you went to art school and you focused a hundred percent of your energy on how humans communicate visually mm -hmm. and then you marry that together and yeah we're in that middle stage where we had to do it all right we, when we were starting out we didn't have researchers we had to do guerrilla research we had to go out there and crunch those numbers ourselves think of questions figure out what questions work how to ask them what privacy issues you have we we did that all ourselves and and we still are in a lot of ways though it 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 benefits everyone to know what everyone on your team is doing to be aware of what that function does maybe not mm -hmm. how to do it but understand the the value that everyone brings to the table and know how to communicate and, and really like basketball team right everyone has a position mm -hmm. some people can't play the other positions but they know about it um and so that's that's kind of my take on it is you know, depending on your setting or what you want to do. Maybe you, you like to be the, the one person show. I, I was the one person show for most of my career. Yeah. Um, it was hard. <laughs> I love working with behavioral scientists now. It is mm -hmm. a pleasure. They bring so much to the table and I learn from them, you know, every day. Um, so I, I feel like the, if the, in my opinion, the industry would only benefit by specialized tracks that are meaning. Maybe some tracks will kind of get dissolved or roll into other ones. Um, and of course, we have you know, more senior. When you're getting into senior and leadership, you got to know how to play in all the fields, right? You, yeah. you are the sub for any position to accomplish that goal. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe I, I have slightly different angle there, but I'm also looking long term. I'm looking down the road. We've matured a lot since we got our start, Darren. Yeah. And I'm sure uh, you two have seen it change quite a bit since you've started, too. Um, and is, the more we support, uh, I wouldn't call it fragmentation. I would I would maybe call it, I don't know, what's a better word? Specialization. Um and supporting that camaraderie and teamwork, I think that's the better path to success. I think that that is, number one, I'm going into professorhood mode, that is the most masterful argument I have ever heard for that, for that, for what we're talking about here. And I applaud you. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put a stamp of approval on that with an <laughs> with an asterisk. 
All right. And I'll explain the asterisk. The one of the differences, and I love every angle that you that was very, very eloquently stated and explained. Here's one of the differences that I think happens. That uh, two things come to mind. The first one that comes to mind is volume. If if somebody in that small town, there's no way in the world that all those specialists would come in because the volume just isn't there and it couldn't be financially sustained. Uh-huh. Uh, so from that perspective, that's where then that person who is more of the generalist and I'm going to, and I'll, I'll, I'll weave in my second point, the internist. Uh-huh. So the, the yep. generalist in UX is like the internist in the medical world. You can go in to see, and, and a lot of our, our uh, primary care doctors are internists. So they can, if you need, they need to do something with your heart, they can address it skillfully, accurately. Uh, if there's something going on with your blood sugar, they can deal with that. If there's something going on with, with uh, your kinesiology, whatever it is, you can name off 50 specializations and the internist can actually skillfully address them all. So that's what the generalist is. Now today, because a lot of people came along after 2010, 2012, most of those people, they're, they're learning about UX, but they're not learning about it the same way that a, that a medical professional was learning that would qualify them to be an internist later. I mean, um, uh, Cristiano is able to do design and then go to research. A lot of other people can't, don't even think about it. <laughs> don't even bring that up. But if there's volume, and 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 it can be sustained, then go for it. Now here and here's the bad part of it. So I'm I'm all I I, I get everything you said and I'm with it. But I that those are the caveats. There's got to be volume, and a lot of people that are specialists. Here's the other part I forgot to mention. A lot of people that are specialists in the medical world, um, they actually are well versed and they could be internists at the same time. And that's where the fragmentation happens today because. People would, you know, power to the specialist, long live the specialist. But the funny thing is, the less you know about design, it hurts you as a researcher and vice versa. So people need to train as if they were going to be an internist. And that actually makes you a better specialist. So that's my, you folks have probably never heard me say, I've said that before. This is the first time I'm saying it for everybody in the world to hear it. Go go ahead and do your specialization, and when there's volume to handle it, more power yeah. to you. Um, and 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 but the more you know about the, I don't know you, you folks have seen my four pillars of UX, and somebody counted it. There's 250 things on there on that <laughs> illustration. So the more you know about those 250 things, the better of a specialist you're going to be. The less you know about those 250 things. Uh, you're not going to be able to bring a lot of value as a specialist. So more power to the specialist, but keep learning. Because the problem today is the average person coming into UX is, as they would say on In Living Color, a lazy lima bean. And because so many people are lazy, they don't want to learn it. And that's when the fragmentation comes because then they don't bring value. And then people see it. You know, what are these people doing? These UXers, they're not worth it. And, and it creates all these problems. So if people come in, I'm going to be quality. I'm going to learn everything that I can and and go from there. Then the, the discipline would be better off. And, and I do agree with a lot of that. I, I really do. And, and I think you're, you're hitting it right on the point. It's volume, yeah. right? If there is, let's say there's a lot of volume. The question that I would have is 
how do you achieve the best quality possible if you're spread too thin? Yeah, more yeah. more people to pick up that load. Right, exactly. More and so, yep. you know, when, when everyone knows their role, uh, it, it's a great environment. But uh, 100% know, knowing or, or seeking the education in all of the disciplines, I don't not recommend. I highly recommend that. I mean, I've I've done that work and, and I'm continuing to do that work um, and I'm not going to stop. I don't ever feel right. like I've OK, I've hit that 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 max and now now I'm good. Right. We're, we're always going to continue to grow through through pain, grow through discomfort, uh, which uh, we got to keep our keep our focus on those 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 um, those wins. Right. Yep. Yeah. Wins. Well, this is great. I, that's why I love hearing the different perspectives. And I think a lot of people are going to appreciate hearing that. That was, that was, that's dynamite stuff. And, and I'll actually, I will incorporate that. I, I will actually echo that. You will hear me repeat that. Andy said this on the show and he's right on the money. Cause it, it was that that's nobody ever. They just dogmatically usually throw something out there. I'm like, eh, no. No, it, it also helped with the, when when the team is more knowledgeable about more aspects of the discipline. They also become more empowered, and when and when when the when the companies like they're doing now decide to cut the numbers down, the team is able to bring more discipline or more value because they know more about the different aspects of the discipline that they can bring forth to generate on the works. And but but if you, everybody's all segmented and. Then they get rid of half the team. What are we gonna do now? Oh no! Okay, well you're all in trouble. Get ready for the next round of layoffs. Right. <laughs> That's what's <laughs> gonna happen. <laughs> but this is, this is dynamite stuff, folks. I think we went way longer than we expected. So I want to thank everybody again for your for your patience uh, as we got through this. But this is I love the energy, love the perspectives. I think people are gonna love what we're what we're uh, talking about here. And and hey, this is the kind of stuff that if people can ground themselves in the types of things that we're sharing, uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that vaults the discipline forward. And, and so uh, thank you again. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Kristana. Thank you, Prachi, for the time that you shared and giving to the, the U.S. community today. And you know we got to get together and do this again. I'm getting together a second time with everybody, so I'd like to give you a forewarning now. But again, we appreciate it. So, folks, we're going to wrap up here uh, again. Thanks to our guests. Appreciate that. And until next time, this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.